Welcome back to another episode of Phasing Out. Today's guest was part of the six-person rowing crew that completed the first-ever human-powered row to Antarctica in December of 2019. Andrew Town holds five world records in ocean rowing, U.S. national championships in collegiate rowing and club running, and a black belt in taekwondo. He has also climbed the tallest mountain on every continent. Yes, that includes Mount Everest. Andrew holds degrees from the Wharton School of Business, the University of Pennsylvania Law School, and a bachelor's degree with honors from Yale. And he somehow found the time to be on my podcast today. So welcome, Andrew Town. I'm so excited to have you on Phasing Out. Thanks so much for having me, Diana. Andrew, obviously you have this crazy list of accomplishments, but who are you? Were you the golden child? How did you get to (laughs) achieve all these things? I'm a dude from rural North Dakota whose definition of success was don't do crack. <laughs> so you're saying that the bar was really high. When when my mom found out that I had had some youthful indiscretions at a teen, as a teen, she furrowed her brow and looked at me very seriously and said, baby, just don't do crack. That stuff will mess you up. (laughs) And what that did for me when I was 17 is set the floor of living up to my mom's highest aspirations for me. So long as I didn't do crack, I knew that I would be a success in her eyes. And that has liberated me to follow my passions ever since. Wow. Was your mom a very inspiring person? Were you really close Uh, To me, she was. Uh, She uh, had a tough upbringing and worked in a variety of different jobs in her 20s and 30s, met my dad, and in her mid-40s had a midlife crisis where she decided to go back to school and become a priest in the Episcopal Church. And I was in sixth grade at the time, and I didn't think much of it when she graduated as valedictorian from her seminary. Uh, and and became the priest of our local church in Grand Forks, North Dakota. But later in life, when she was dying of cancer, she told me a little bit about the hardships she'd endured. And when I contrast her descriptions of the life she'd lived when she was younger with her later success, I guess, as a priest, being loved by her community, uh, it, 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 it showed me just how far any person can go if they believe in themselves and if they have a little bit of help from a supportive partner, uh, and a supportive community. Was it a shock that she decided to be a priest or did you grow up going to church every Sunday? She and my dad met in their early thirties in a church choir. Uh, their, their common love was for music and growing up, we went to church because it was part of each of their habits. Uh, but Throughout elementary school, I saw her interest in and her faith deepening to the point that she decided to receive the calling to become a priest. So do you think that your your understanding that you could live a second life outside the life that you built comes from her? Absolutely. I believe it's never too late to start a totally new chapter in life. My college roommate's mom taught herself uh, coding in her 50s, I think even well into her 50s, and is now a software engineer. Uh, my mom went back to school and and became a priest, complete career shift. Um, I myself 
left consulting to be a car wash owner operator at age 40. And I, I don't feel like I'm in my later innings yet. So there might even be a couple more big pivots in the next 25 years. Wow. Well, I did some research and it sounds like you also worked for the CIA and national intelligence. <laughs> so there's already been a couple of pivots. <laughs> so you've had a few lives before this. At what point was that part of your journey? So you, you got your law degree and then did you go straight into politics or straight into government? And then, or BCG was the next natural step. I know Penn always pushed people to go into consulting, but I'm curious about just your journey. Sure. So in, in North Dakota, in high school, we could learn three languages, uh, Latin, German, Spanish. And I chose German. And when I was 16, my German teacher suggested I become an exchange student. So uh, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to study abroad for my junior year of high school. And that made me fascinated by cultures and what it means to be German, what it means to be American, and how that sort of manifests as this sense of being Americans and this sense of being Germans and how Germany and America interact. So I, I went into college wanting to explore that and, and, and hoping to be able to give back to you know, my community, humanity, us, in a way similar to the way that my mom and dad had as a teacher and a priest. And so that was that was why I went into foreign policy. Uh, I was a sophomore on 9 11. Uh, and and I am in my college, college, college. I was a sophomore in college on 9 11. And I remember um, just blinking. And that I mean, that was a huge moment in so many people's lives, mine included. And, and many friends and I sort of shifted. And, and so I knew I was interested in international relations and I ended up at CIA because I liked the idea of having a more specific role in national security and doing what I could to uh, undermine those terrorists who had brought down the Twin Towers. Um, I did that for a number of years, and it was while serving in northern Iraq in the city of Mosul that I realized that in 2010-2011, the insurgents there were not so much motivated by ideology or hatred of the West as they were by lack of economic opportunity. And that got the wheels turning about how really one of the most powerful things that we can do to help reduce conflict in neighborhoods and cities around the world is to create a more vibrant economy so that people have opportunities so that they're not so desperate that they pick up arms and try and hurt each other. So anyway, business was the way of transitioning from CIA into something else that could help build economies. And law was uh, out of a fascination for who sets the rules of society in any different culture. And so, so I almost think of it as like business people think of it as here, given the constraints of the society in which they operate, how can they optimize whatever they're trying to do? But law is fundamentally a question of what are the rules that we want to govern ourselves and how do we interpret them and how do we shape them? So anyway, BCG was a great way for me to continue seeing how businesses shape economies that shape the world. Um, and my most recent switch came from a preference to having a more direct impact on those economies. So as a car wash owner operator, my business partners and I are most proud of the fact that we're trying to create the best jobs in retail and that the 
you know, we pay significantly above minimum wage and, and we, we try and give people second chances whenever we can uh, while investing in, in often underserved communities. So it's about a clean car, but it's also about creating teams and helping to give back to communities and needs. And are you building this chain in Denver or are you hoping for national expansion? Uh, my, my business partners and I currently operate in Nebraska, Utah, Texas, North and South Carolina. And then we're developing car washes in uh, in eight states around the country. So not yet in Colorado, but in Nebraska, we're starting to stretch west. But you're based in Colorado. That's right. Yeah, my, my business partners and I uh, sort of go wherever we need to for the business. One of them lives in D.C. and one of them lives in, in Salt Lake. And, uh, you know, we find ourselves on planes or in cars pretty often. How did you meet them? Friends of friends, really. Um, I knew I was interested in in leading a business and and doing something a little bit more entrepreneurial. And so I was having coffee with an old colleague from BCG Detroit who had become the CEO of Tommy's Express Car Wash in Michigan. And I was just fascinated by his switch from consulting into car wash. And he introduced me to uh, Trevor Sperry and Michael Cianelli, my now business partners, who had just founded Olympus Pines with a goal of of uh, developing a lot of Tommy's Express car washes. And, and Mike and Trevor and I hit it off. I respected the fact that Mike had served in the Navy as a fighter pilot. Trevor had served for his Senator Orrin Hatch from Utah. Um, and the three of us all were similarly committed to creating an awesome place for our team members and our communities. And yeah, it, no looking back. Been almost a year now since I joined them. Well, what's next for you? So you went from the CIA to and, and serving your country to BCG and now car washes and you rode to Antarctica, like you're in the Guinness world record. And so what's next? Like when you've done so much in your life, how do you keep yourself even motivated? You have five world records to your name. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, it in the near future, we want to bring a Tommy's Express car wash near you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're, we're growing very rapidly. Uh, it's very exciting to both put in place the structures and the team to fuel that growth. Um, and I like it. I like getting up out of bed every day and working with the teams that we have in these states and, and, and contributing to the culture that can bring Tommy's Express to more people. And I like working the drive-through window and and cleaning the vacuums and talking to guests and 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 see the sparkle in their eyes when they come out of the car wash with their with their showroom shine and a fresh coat of wax. Like the fact that it's one of the most sustainable models of car wash in the world is sort of icing on the cake that that we're actually like the buildings are all lead certifiable. Um but you asked what's next and the answer is uh, I really am enjoying building these car washes and I like how it enables us to give back to our communities. Um, but I would like to continue deepening my community service whenever there's an opportunity. So I, I guess I, I think of, I think of life as a balance. I think of it as like four spheres. In fact, it was one of our pen professors, um, Stu Friedman, who, who he has a book that talks about the four domains of life. And for him, they are, 
you have your your personal health and well-being you have your family you have your community um and then and then you have your career and and i've always liked thinking about life in those four so for me health and expeditions and spirituality and intellectual growth that's all those are things that i'm constantly trying to optimize in the personal domain in the family domain i'm asking for myself how can i be a better husband son uh uncle etc in the in the professional domain i'm asking myself how can i challenge myself and uh do what i love and then finally in the community domain i'm always asking how am i giving back because i actually ultimately think that the greatest litmus test for a life well lived is the degree to which we've had a positive impact on those around us i think there's that famous quote save one life save the world uh i i believe in that kind of thing very strongly and so you know these four domains sometimes have tension between them and they sometimes overlap and so the more that we can push for overlap that's when we get greater synergies between our actions and our goals um but yeah the the near term i think is is looking for more in the community bucket and then you know someday i'll be blessed to have a family and then the family bucket will will change and we'll see hope that you mentioned Stu Friedman i um i interned for just the war and management department and definitely stapled papers for Adam Grant and Sue Friedman. And, and so it's really funny just hearing his name out in the wild as <laughs> more than somebody that I would just staple papers for make photocopies for. I mean, talk, talk about, talk about two people who have ideas that are changing lives all over the world. You know, I, it's I credit both of amazing them. Amazing watching Adam Grant get the recognition he's always deserved. Mm-hmm. And and Richard Schell is another uh, Penn professor whose reflections through his book Springboard have really helped uh, a lot of people like me think about how they define success because it's not as easy as title or money or academic contribution to the literature or whatever other stereotype we might have. And I feel like specifically at Penn, I don't know if your experience was different because you were in a graduate program, but there is definitely this cookie cutter definition and everybody pushes you to know exactly what you're doing right after school. But there wasn't so much of an emphasis on your journey and just ending up where you are. So it's been really interesting seeing everyone's lives take such an interesting turn. Like if you scroll through LinkedIn, none of the people that you thought would still be at in consulting are doing that a lot of people some people did follow the path but everyone's doing really cool things totally and and uh i couldn't agree with that more and i think in my experience it's like almost any community i've ever joined has had to some extent a little bit about a little bit of that self-perpetuating mindset you know like the college athletes think that college sports are the best way to spend a university career. Uh, the the people in national security for the U.S. government are all very, they've all chosen it because they're passionate about it and they've all turned down other opportunities and they think it's the best. The, you know, the people in the business school think that a couple of different paths with their business degrees like are the best. They open the doors, they have the best compensation, whatever. Um, I'm sure that, you know, there are probably academics who, might think that one particular line of research is the the new way of thinking that everybody should be pushing on instead of some other line of thinking. 
And I guess I've, I've had my years of, of drinking Kool-Aid from those different influences. Uh, but I guess that's why I feel so liberated from, by my own, by my parents, much broader definition of just don't do crack, you'll be fine. <laughs> Isn't it so amazing? Because I think that a lot of people attribute their success to having really intense parents that really pushed them Um specifically a lot of friends that I have from immigrant backgrounds had super organized parents that put them in all these different activities. And I had like immigrant parents too, but they didn't immigrate until later in life. But I never had that kind of pressure. It was more like, okay, like just stay out of trouble. And obviously there were expectations. It was kind of like quiet, hidden expectations to do well in school. But I always kind of had this like, why didn't you push me to do dance class? Why didn't you do all these things? And so it's interesting that you've accomplished so much, but you didn't have parents pushing you to do it. Yeah, I, I think about this a lot. Um, sources of motivation at different points in our life. Uh, and I think parents are a very common source of motivation in many different ways, not just the, you know, the stereotypical parent who's cracking the whip hard but also you know Proving the parent who's something like that or the you know I, uh, friends of mine who are parents already have told me that when they had kids that became a totally different source of motivation like the motivation was literally oh my gosh i now i now have this thing that i love more than anything that i want to see thrive and like i better get up and do my job to be a good father or mother um and so I'm open to the idea that motivation can change. For me, uh, motivation has been a combination of intrinsic and extrinsic. It's been extrinsic in the sense that uh, while my parents never pushed me or told me that they had certain expectations for me, they also, you know, they also sort of weren't easily impressed. Like there was no there was no series of blue ribbons hanging on the fridge there was no congratulations you got a solo in the high school musical there was that's great did you practice hard enough to really nail the part you know <laughs> like okay so you got the lead are you going to do it well let's practice some more <laughs> uh so that would be the extrinsic was just sort of like i've also never been told you did good enough now you can sit back and relax uh on the intrinsic, what I've found is going from being a non-athlete as a teenager to being a, a Division One national champion rower in college was an extremely big change for me between the ages of 18 and 22. And I, I, there were so many times that I wanted to quit the crew team. At Yale. Yeah, yeah. The, the reason I stuck with it was because I knew that if I quit, I would be quitting because I could no longer handle the pain of a, of a difficult endurance sport. And then finally, my senior year, I knew that I could handle the pain and I trusted myself to always go faster at the moment that I wanted to go slower. That instead, my, my senior year, what carried my through was a, was a desire to give back to the team that had given me so much. But the reason I share this in terms of intrinsic motivation, that four-year period created in me a passion for testing myself because 
there's no sweeter satisfaction that I've ever experienced than testing myself and responding in a way that I was proud. Um, so that can be applied to any aspect of life. You can set a professional goal and achieve it. You can set an, an athletic goal and achieve it. You can set a goal and completely miss and learn how to pick yourself up and keep trying. But when people ask me my favorite food, my answer has always been anything after a good workout or a, or a mountaineering expedition. It's like, and, and the same applies to life. Like, <laughs> why are you so happy all the time? Well, because I make myself suffer for an hour a day. And then the other 23 seem awesome by contrast. And that, and that suffering could be the hour. It's the hour a day that you, there's a book called eat the frog or something like that. And they refer to like, do the, your least pleasant task of the day in the morning so that then it's done and you can do everything else with excitement. I totally eat the frog every day. And I just, I love to eat the frog. I love to like, my workout is often my least favorite part of the day. So it's but at I the beginning, it. your morning workout person. No, I'm actually, I'm actually an afternoon worker outer, but I make sure that I always do it, even if it's raining or even if it's too cold, because it's that workout that make the other 23 hours in the day. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> What's your workout about, routine? Uh, it, it depends on the year right now. I'm, I'm mostly running. Um, Are you training for anything? I know you've already completed. <laughs> I did my uh, research. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not training for any race in particular right now, but um, some, a goal that I have is someday I'd like to be able to run faster than my wife. Uh, we've, we've, we've raced one another three times now and she's beaten me all three times. Uh, one of them in like the last half mile, she passed <laughs> me with a grin on her face. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, I don't know. We've got our eyes on a couple of mountaineering expeditions. We haven't committed to which mountains we're going to do together. Uh, but it'll, it'll be either a big mountain or, uh, like a half marathon or a big road race. So Speaking of mountaineering, it says that you've survived a an avalanche when you tried to climb Everest the first time around. Do you think that that's giving you perspective that if you could make it through a 7.8 magnitude earthquake aval avalanche that you can make it through anything? Yeah, the avalanche you're referring to was the deadliest day in Mount Everest history on uh it was in april i believe april 25th of course you were there <laughs> that's just bad luck uh it was a 7.8 earthquake that killed thousands and thousands of people across the country of nepal it was a humanitarian tragedy of uncommon scale uh this most recent earthquake in turkey and syria is of course proving to have been even more devastating but any of these massive natural disasters are are, are tragic. Uh, the impact the earthquake had on Mount Everest is that it knocked a massive ice shelf off of the mountain next to Everest. And that ice shelf fell almost two vertical miles and exploded across the glacier on which Everest Base Camp exists, almost like a shotgun blast. So Everest Base Camp is a long thin ribbon of tents and camps along this glacier and the avalanche was like a shotgun blast through the middle third of base camp so the 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 people who died 
in the avalanche essentially got hit by rocks and ice chunks the size of trucks and even RVs. Some of them were knocked and their bodies were found hundreds of meters further down the glacier. Uh, but where my camp was, at the edge of all of base camp, we just got a light dusting of snow from this cloud, from this explosion of the shotgun blast of the avalanche. So I was I was in the avalanche in the sense that I got covered in snow by the avalanche, but I was not in it in the sense that I and my teammates escaped the most dangerous part, which were the big rocks and ice chunks. Um, we were lucky that because our tents were unfazed, our expedition later invited all of the doctors from all other camps to come to us and bring the wounded and the dying so that we could treat them in our dining tents and our communications tent. And for 24 hours after the earthquake, my teammates and I and the doctors from around base camp essentially led a triage effort to do everything we could for the patients before they could be helicoptered further down the valley to professional care. Um, it, it, it was it was very difficult. Uh, I mean, in how the long moment, did you stay there? Yeah, the earthquake hit just before noon on April 25th, and almost exactly 24 hours later, the last casualty was air vacked out of base camp. So we got very lucky that helicopters were able to take them out that quickly, um, and so the care was basically round the clock from then. The doctors were leading the triage and and doing some of the more uh nuanced things like stitches and and doing what they could to set bones and stuff like that and then non-medically trained people like myself were helping with the bandages and and bringing food and water and sleeping bags and trying to help patients stay comfortable and warm and you know keeping the place as sanitary as we could given the conditions um but your original question was how did that impact me and i think a lot of people who've had a near-death experience like that would say that it helps them appreciate just how short life is, right? Like the people at Mount Everest Base Camp are some of the hardest working, fittest people in the world. Otherwise, they wouldn't be trying to climb Mount Everest. And so to see those lives snuffed out in a split second of bad luck made me realize that I could get hit by a car any day of the week like uh, uh there are other natural disasters that could befall me like we just got out of a global pandemic like nobody knew who was going to have a more adverse reaction to covid and who was going to have a less adverse reaction to covid and so what i take away from that is accept that our days are fleeting and live every day with purpose and and it's okay like this doesn't mean we need to devolve into a life of hedonism where we have five pints of Ben and Jerry's every single day. But we should also be conscious of the trade-offs we're making. And when we say, I'm just going to do this career for 15 years so that I can afford a nice house, it's like, well, nothing's guaranteed. Yeah. If you if you don't like that job, like I hope you're okay with that trade-off. Cause like, what if you only get 10 of those 15 years and right. you never had the house and like was it really worth it to be working toward that house? And even if you get the house, it's like, was that house worth 15 years of not playing the trombone or pursuing whatever your true passion might have been? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting you mentioned that. But would you say that the that having that mentality is also attributed to having 
like genetically you're less predisposed to depression? Do you feel like you are generally a mentally strong person? Uh, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, mental health is a real and I think under talked about issue in all societies. Uh, it pains me to think that there are stigma in some societies that make it hard for people to talk about chemical imbalances, depression, uh, other things like that. Um, I've not been diagnosed with depression at any point in my life, but I've, I've had many friends and some family members who have been, uh, and I've seen the toll that it takes on them that is, that is not in their control, right? So I guess in that sense, I, I do feel lucky that I haven't so far faced any like physical or mental obstacles, so to speak. Um, I also think that like, it's, it's, it's really important that people are honest with themselves and, and look for the care that they can find when they're feeling dis-ease, whether it be physical or mental. And then as a society, I hope that we can continue to have the conversation and recognize that, you know, it's like the difference between equality and equity, right? Um, equality is we give we give everybody the same block to stand on to look over the fence, but the person who's shorter still can't see over the fence. Whereas equity is the person who's shorter gets a, gets a larger block so that everybody actually can see over the fence. And so applied to mental health and things like depression, you know, um, I mean, my mom benefited from some social services that helped her turn her life around. And I, I'm, I'm so grateful that she got that hand up that that equitable treatment that allowed her to go on and live a life in which she gave so much to her community and her family. Um, yeah. So did, yeah. does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. I, I do wonder. So from the group that you were that experiencing all these like losses post avalanche after the earthquake, um, did it have that that experience have the same impact on other people? Because I feel like coming back from that experience and then you went back and still climbed Everest at a later time. Did you always know you'd go back to that? Because that's a pretty traumatic experience, first attempt at least. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak for my teammates, uh, but I think I think I I observed some of them having very different reactions. So in 2015, there were probably 20 of us who were sort of at this camp really leading the recovery effort. And then in 2017, there were four or five of us out of those 20 who found ourselves teammates again, attempting the summit again. Uh, of those four or five, one person dealt with that trauma by preferring not to talk about it and 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 did not want to relive that experience. And then a different one was much more like me. The person actually found it cathartic to talk about it and to take lessons from it and share lessons from it and think through it and try and unpack what had happened. So uh, I'm in no position to judge. I don't think there's any way that's better than another i just think people handle trauma and grief differently and we all kind of just got to go through it the way that we go through it 
But when you came back, did you always know you'd go back and try to climb it again? Or... No, no, no. Immediately after the earthquake, I was just glad to be alive. Uh, and I had, I was a bit shook about the danger of dangers of mountaineering. Um, but, you know, as, as the trauma sort of set in and I sort of came to grips with it and my life resumed, I, I realized that I still loved mountaineering. I still loved the goal of finishing the seven summits. And then it became just a question of like, when will I be able to take that time off of life for two months? And, and when will I have the funds to attempt again? I love that. So you, so this was at what point when, when this took place, how many of the seven summits had you climbed? In 2015, Everest would have been my sixth of the seven summits. Wow. And I, and I still had to do Antarctica, the tallest mountain in Antarctica, uh, after Everest, after the avalanche, I was able to climb the tallest mountain in, in Antarctica in December that year, just before starting my full-time job with BCG. Uh, and then and then a year and a half later, BCG gave me two months off so that I could go back to Mount Everest in 2017. Given that you were your team was the first to boat to Antarctica, did people tell you not to do that? Like, how does it work when you're about to embark on setting a world record? Yeah, I mean, most people said, don't do that, right? <laughs> what did you pack? <laughs> what did you bring? No, no, nobody really says, hey, Andrew, that's a great idea. Like, <laughs> nobody says that. <laughs> people just say, wow, that's the deadliest like, passage of water in the world. You must be crazy. <laughs> but like, how does that even come about? Is it just a group chat you have with friends and you're like, let's just... <laughs> row all the way to Antarctica. Like what take me through the thought process that led to that leap. <laughs> uh his name is Matt Brown. And in January 2017, Matt Brown was part of uh the one was part of the crew that set the world record for the fastest ever row across the Atlantic Ocean. That record has since been passed by another crew who went even faster. But when I got down from Mount Everest in May 2017, he and I caught up that summer. He was telling me about his world record rowing across the Atlantic. I was telling him about the seven summits. And he said, Andrew, you'd really love ocean rowing. Like it has the rowing that you love from college plus the bad weather possibility the bad, yeah the bad the, that's right the near death possibility and the bad weather and the multi-week length that you love about mountaineering so let's just take your little six minute two kilometer rowing race and mix it with three weeks of expedition style sports and you got yourself a winner and he was right like it dawned on me that exact conversation i was like this is perfect. This is everything that I love. It's it's a new opportunity to test my fears and my limits. Um, and it is the perfect mix of of passions that I had built up to that point. So so he introduced me to Theon Paul, who was our captain on the impossible road to Antarctica. And Theon had been concocting this for a couple of months. Uh, and together, Theon and I recruited the team. Fion had two friends with whom he had rowed across the Indian Ocean, Cameron Bellamy and Jamie Douglas Hamilton. And I had two friends from college 
uh, John Peterson and, and Colin O'Brady, who were interested in going on the expedition. So the, the six of us spent a year and a half planning and, and then off we went. But if, if you want to hear more about the naysayers, I've got some stories. <laughs> well, do you have any fears? Yeah, uh, tons of fears. I mean, name one. The fear that I will fail in a in a business enterprise that I'm committed to, a fear that I won't live up to my t- potential, fear that I won't be a good husband or son, fear that somebody close to me might hurt me intentionally or unintentionally, fear that I forgot my keys when I left the house. Like dumb. No, I don't know. Fear is everywhere. Um, Not a fear of heights, though. It sounds like. No, 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 no. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fear of heights is still there. In fact, uh, just a week or two ago, I was at an amusement park with a water slide and my knees were literally shaking. It was one of those water slides where you cross your arms and the bottom of the water slide falls out and and, and you like go almost vertical. I'm telling you, the fear of heights was there and it's a water slide, 60 feet tall. And I'm like, oh God, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> but wow, that's a, that's incredible. It's, so you've climbed the seven summits and you still have some latent fears of heights. Fears of waterfalls. Absolutely. Oh, fears wow. of swimming too. If you, if you released me in the Schuylkill River in Philadelphia. Gross. <laughs> well, no, they, they do the Philly triathlon is in the Schuylkill River. And if you challenge me to swim a half a mile in the Schuylkill River, like even though it's only the Schuylkill River, uh, I'd be scared that I might, what if I get weak and what if I start flailing or drowning? No, I actually think fear is absolutely part of my life as it's a part of every the lives of everybody that I know. The question is, what do you do with the fear? Does it paralyze you? Or can you look it in the eye, take the appropriate risk mitigations and then force yourself to continue with it. I think actually even Alex Honnold, in one of his interviews about his free solo climb of El Capitan, I, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think he actually talked about it and said, yeah, you're absolutely afraid while you're free soloing El Cap. You just continue to climb carefully and not let it mess you up, you know, and not in those words, but I think he had a similar thought. But if it's a spectrum of confidence and fear, because I think... If you lack a certain degree of confidence, you can't achieve certain things. Um, Like some people actually say that one of the ways to be successful is you have to be a little bit delusional. Like you have to be like, I'm going to make it. Yes. And this might sound weird. For me, uh, that came from going to a place like Yale from a place like rural North Dakota. Because in rural North Dakota, my high school friends will tell you there's nothing special about Andrewtown. Like, I didn't, I didn't have the best test scores. I didn't get the best grades in my high school. I certainly, in were fact, you, not only was I not the best athlete, athlete, I was actually, not only was I not the best athlete, I was actually dead last on the cross country team my senior year. Um, and so they would tell you, Andrew's a Andrew's a, a Joe Schmo, just like all of us uh arriving it doesn't smoke place. crack though no that's right that's right no crack keep it clean i uh, arriving in a place like yale though all of a sudden i found myself at age 18 surrounded by kids who did have perfect test scores and had already performed at carnegie hall and whatever else 
And what I realized was there's no difference between us. Like we're, we're actually all the same. We're all just human. And like, like one of my college dormitory buddies who was in, he and I did intramural sports every once in a while, founded Pinterest. And like, I didn't even know it for like 10 years. And then I was looking up, I was looking up Pinterest for some reason. I was like, wait, is that the same Ben Silverman? No way. Ben did that. And, and like props to Ben and the founding team. Pinterest is a great platform, but Ben is a very normal dude, or at least was when I knew him in college. And, and so your question was, are you delusional? I actually think. Oh, I didn't word it that way. <laughs> no, I actually think anybody who thinks that somebody else has special sauce that they lack, they are delusional for not realizing that there is no special sauce. You don't we, think that you have an X factor that led to no, of your no. No, no, I'm telling you like what would the X factor be? I don't think I have a stronger heart than the average human. I don't think I have a stronger willpower than the average human. I certainly don't have a stronger intellect than the average human. I I think we all kind of have what we got and it includes some strengths and some weaknesses and it's a question of what we do with it. So does luck to, have to, anything to do with it? Yes. I would define luck as a combination of, um, no, sorry. I would define opportunity as the combination of luck and preparation. So yes, random chance does play some role. Aversely, when you're at Everest Base Camp in an avalanche, fortunately, when I met Mike and Trevor, my now business partners, at exactly the moment that I was looking for a career change and they were looking for a third partner on their founding team. Um, similarly, but but luck, <laughs> preparation can increase the likelihood that you're ready to seize on a little bit of good luck. And you can have all the luck in the world, but if you haven't prepared to do anything with it, then it won't lead to an opportunity. So I guess I guess there is a little bit that's out of our control. But most things I think are are in our control. And, and it frustrates me when I see people who give up on themselves because they think that there's something outside of their control. It's like, no, no, we can all get a library card. We can all study. It's never too late. We can all like get out of bed 20 minutes earlier and like meditate for those 20 minutes or or read up on something. Um, well, maybe what if your X factor is that you're humble? And that's why you don't recognize that you have an X factor or a special sauce. Would would my friends say that I'm humble? Good question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Do you believe that everyone is an average of their five closest friends? Uh, great question. I don't know about five closest friends, but I do think I do think that the people that we surround ourselves with influence us a ton. They shape our perception about what's possible. They, they influence what types of daily decisions are normal or good or extra or lowballing. Um, I find myself attracted to friends who help me see the world in new ways and stretch my own boundaries. And I seek those people out and I build friendships with them. And I do think, you know, associating yourself with ocean rowers 
increases the likelihood that you might go on a world record setting ocean row, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. So you touched but, on this but, a but little actually, bit. Actually, a lesson for everybody, I often hear, Andrew, how do I get into mountaineering? None of my friends like to hike. And my answer is, Make I hiked friends. alone. I hiked alone. And I signed up for expeditions on Mount Rainier and in the Andes where I didn't know anybody. And by the time I had gone on three week-long expeditions with complete strangers, I now had 20 people who lived all over the country and a couple of them who lived in other countries. And when I was ready for that next expedition, I did have a friend. For example, Mont Blanc. I wanted to climb in Chamonix, France. And I had a friend from one of these mountaineering expeditions who lived in Chamonix and wanted to hike with me. And it was like, perfect. See, now I have a friend group that likes to hike. <laughs> I love that. So no excuses is pretty much what got you this far. Yeah, go for it. If you think you might want to do it, just just go for it and find the people, find the place, find the time to go for it. You touched on this a little bit. You said you weren't athletic in school, so you weren't a recruited athlete to Yale. You walked on. Sure. And did you just rebrand yourself as an athlete the second you got to college, like reinvent yourself? Yep. So when I was in eighth grade, I was five foot three, which is a foot shorter than I am today. And I was 220 pounds, which is 50 pounds heavier than I was as a college athlete. And I was so overweight that I I could actually hold a pencil under my boob, right? That's how, that's how big my, my man boobs were. Moves. Um, <laughs> moves, exactly. It, so much so that in eighth grade, uh, one day in math class, a kid raised his hand and he said, teacher, this chair is busted. And the teacher said, no, that chair is not busted. That chair is broken. Busted is the condition of having a bust or breasts. At which point my classmate, it was like a light bulb went on over his head and he turned and he pointed at me and he yelled, hounds busted. Oh no. It, I, I I have the yearbook to show you. This was back in the day when you got a physical yearbook and you would pass it around for signatures. And every single person who signed it, it came back to me and they had drawn boobs on my 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 photos and written towns busted over my forehead in every single photo. So going walking onto the crew team was actually like a major, major event. Uh, but it was the result of spending all of high school trying to just plain lose weight. When I first went jogging, I couldn't even jog a block. I had to jog half a block and then walk the rest of the block. And after like six months, I jogged a mile without stopping. It was probably like a 15-minute mile. I don't even know. Um, and that was one of the proudest days of my life up to age 15. And so senior year of high school, I walked onto the cross-country team and it didn't matter to me that I was dead last or every once in a while second to last. It was the fact that for the first time in my life, I was on a sports team. I could do something other than theater. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in college, you know, the, the 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 kids who called me Towns Busted later called me Choir Boy. And I think I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because when I went to college, I, I wanted to see if I could reinvent myself as a as a Division I varsity athlete. And and crew was actually just a result of the fact that that was the only Division I sport that took people with no background. So it kind of was just that's the opportunity that's there. <laughs> so you joined the lightweight crew team? Uh, joined heavyweight and switched to lightweight after a year. 
Okay. Interesting. Because I did see that your record was through lightweight, but you joined us. Wow. That's yeah. But that, that was, really it was speaks to the journey. It, it was freshman year. If you're a walk on, they just like randomly assign mm-hmm. you. And, and they must've assumed that because I was six foot three, that I, that I would flesh out and be a big, strong heavyweight, <laughs> but it's right on the cusp. There were ultimately I decided I, I would rather be the biggest and strongest lightweight and have to suffer through a little bit of dieting during season than be a medium-sized heavyweight where there's always going to be somebody who's six feet 10 and just plain stronger than me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that out of all the things you've done, what is your proudest accomplishment? I mean, the one that had the biggest impact on my life other than marrying my wife was, was rowing. Because, you know, like arguably rowing a boat to Antarctica is like a bigger deal. But for me personally, going from total non-athlete to earning a spot in a boat with seven really, really strong college rowers and then together winning the national championship was like, that was just the sort of mind blowing like, whoa, if you can go from towns busted to national champion rower, like there's nothing that a guy or that a person can't do. <laughs> do you think so much of the desire to prove people wrong fueled you? It, it certainly did the first three years on the crew team in college. Um, it's, it certainly did. And like, I, I was proud of the fact that the same people who had teased me had quit their college sports teams if they played at all. Um, but that was quickly replaced by like that motivation isn't actually enough to get you out of bed six days a week for crew practice. You know, like <laughs> at some point there's something else that keeps you going to the boathouse. And for me, that something was knowing that if I quit, I would be quitting for the wrong reason. Uh, and that was enough to get me to practice every single day. Eat, eat the frog, right? Eat the frog. So did you meet your wife after Antarctica or before? Uh, we met just after the row to Antarctica. Um, and uh, so we met online. But what struck me about her profile photos was there was a photo of her standing in front of two famous mountains in Colorado. And so, <laughs> you know, the, the, the line was, hey, picture three, are those maroon bells? And it turned out. <laughs> It turned out this was like very, very early days of the pandemic. Um, it turned out that that she had been working remote in the pandemic from Colorado, and I'd been doing the same thing. And so uh, our first dates were essentially uh, climbing 14ers in Colorado, uh, which is which is why we've you know why we've now moved to Denver. Um, but ironically, like we just I don't know we it, it was meant to be in the sense that she had convinced her parents in high school to let her go to a high altitude running school in the mountains of Colorado because she loved trail running so much, but she was a member of the bar of Minnesota where she has relatives and where she did a clerkship clerkship after law school. And she studied abroad and loves diplomacy and international relations. And um, so we just sort of, you know, we, we just connect on many levels from both how we like to spend our time also to the types of problems that we think about and see in the world that we want to help fix. Do you feel like you had to accomplish the things that you have before you could meet your person? 
Uh, good question. I, I think in my 20s, I definitely had a, a pretty selfish stretch. And what I mean by that was from age like 24 to 30, I was really using every vacation day that I had to climb a mountain. And I was scheduling my, like when I was serving in Iraq, for example, you did three months on and then you'd get two weeks off. And and during those three months, you'd work every single day because it's a war zone. There's not much else to do. But then the two weeks off, I scheduled a big mountaineering expedition. And grad school, like I set my grad school schedule up so that I finished my entire degree in February of my final year so that I could go to Mount Everest. And and But for the earthquake, I would have missed graduation. I was like, no, don't need to walk across the stage, just need to climb Mount Everest. And so that's that's what I mean by I was selfish in the sense that I was really choosing the things that I wanted to do pretty exclusively in my 20s and, and up until early 30s. Uh, so in that sense, like if I had if I had met my wife during those years, I, you know, I probably still would have just done my expeditions and not gone on dates. <laughs> do you feel do you worry that starting a family and having children will change that sense of adventure and your maybe um, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm afraid of it. I I'm excited someday to hopefully be able to see the world through the eyes of a child. Um, I'm excited to see what whimsy and they bring and what they get excited about. And, and yes, there's a part of me that hopes that they might someday be excited to hike or to row. But <laughs> my, my, my parents very much supported me and my brother in doing whatever we wanted to pursue they they felt very strongly that we should not do something just because they liked it and i hope someday you know if we're, if we're lucky enough to have kids i i hope that i can similarly let them find themselves and not try and make them mini mountaineers i love that you said that so you're not charting the course for them to do the same things that you've done you want them yeah to and I, and I, and i also i maybe this is where more people fall into a trap I hope that I won't allow too much of my ego someday to get caught up into what they choose to do, right? And uh, I mean, I you hear parents talk about their kids sometimes, and you almost start to wonder, like, are the parents actually measuring themselves based on where their kids are working or going to college or whatever? Uh, but like, that's just, it just sets up such a high risk of false expectations and like pursuing the wrong goals that no, like, I mean, I'm in the car wash space right now. Like if, if, if someday my kids said that they really love the car wash machine and that they want to become an expert, a technical expert of that car wash tunnel, I'd be like, yeah, I see the excitement in your eyes. Like, let's do it. Like, how do we make you the best car wash tradesperson possible? Um, the only thing I wouldn't tolerate would be crack. Incredible. Just don't do crack. <laughs> don't do crack. No. And, and why We've not? come crack, full circle. Crack, crack becomes an analogy for any type of self-harm, right? It's like Absolutely. You, can, you can do anything that's positive for yourself and your community. What you can't do is hurt yourself or others or, um, yeah. And, and, and hurt yourself can take a variety of different forms, not just physical, but like, don't do something that impedes your mind. Don't do something that, that, 
uh, creates legal risk for yourself. Like anyway, don't do crack. That's that's exactly how I'd like to end the podcast. Don't do crack. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Andrew. This was incredible. And I I felt transformed by it. And I hope it has the same impact on other people. But um, where can people follow what you're up to? Do you have a social media presence? Should they request you on Twitter or LinkedIn or any other channel? Sure. On Instagram, you can find me at Andrewtown, A-N-D-R-E-W-T-O-W-N-E. On LinkedIn, you can also find me as Andrewtown. Uh, every once in a while, I'll publish some thoughts on one medium or another. Um, but I, I don't, I don't do a ton. So, so follow along if you're interested, and you'll see some interesting thoughts or mountaineering exploits once in a while. But uh, I'm yeah, still rooting here. for an announcement for political candidacy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Ser- serving one's community can take many forms. Uh, the, but so long as we all look for some way or another to serve. Well, thank you so much for your service and for your appearance on the podcast. And I look forward to seeing everything that you do. Thank you so much, Diana. It's been a real pleasure. Mm-hmm.